welcome back to the Barks Out of the Moon podcast. Okay, so um, we talked about this a good while ago, um, and I finally um, tricked you into doing it because you have no idea <laughs> what I'm going to say now. <laughs> How would you like to be prepared? Which I which I guess totally. So, um, but it's 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 going to be good. It's going to be fun. Um, so for you, it's going to be fun for you. <laughs> it's going to be fun for me and everyone else listening to it. Yeah. Um, so basically. Throughout the years, I've had many people um, that I've worked with or taught or whatever I've said, or even family members and stuff, I've said really random stuff um, to do with dogs. Um, kind of myths, I suppose, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I've just kind of compiled a list over the last, I don't know how long, um, and I've just kept kept making it and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I just thought it would be fun to throw them at you and see Thank you. What, <laughs> what you think in your humble opinion is going on and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll go from there. What do you think? Great. Can't wait. <laughs> okay. Right. So I don't, I don't know what you're going to say. I don't have no. any idea. And normally in fairness, we do plan what we're going to talk about, yeah. but then we generally go so far off. <laughs> and I say we, I'm talking about me, go so far <laughs> off the thing that whatever we've planned, yeah. I, there's so much other stuff has been added by the time we actually do it. Cause it kind of happens a bit organically really, doesn't it? Cause yeah. we're just talking. But that's cool. This, yeah. Yeah, and this is how we'd be talking. Even if we were recording this, we'd be talking <laughs> exactly. about this stuff anyway. That's where this came from. It's like we yeah, talk so actually, long on the phone, we yeah. might as well just record we it and well put it on the internet. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so this time, I have no idea. So I feel completely like this is going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's terrible, it's on me. Um, right, okay. I no, it's not at all. It's I don't on think, me. No, 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 it's not. No, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be all good. Some of them, like everyone will have heard um mm-hmm. so some of these and then other ones are just completely way out there and, and, and random as well so that's the fun okay so fun i've got for my you. popcorn fun and everything here oh, yeah good yeah. good so, i'm glad you're okay started. so here goes for the first okay. one okay okay go can dogs put on a guilty face on um well that's an, it's okay so th- there's an interesting <laughs> you'll be sorry uh th- this is an interesting thing because the way you've worded it mm-hmm. right is that can dogs put on a guilty face and lots of people would perceive that yes dogs can put on a guilty face but what's interesting is is that even without needing to go and start talking about really complex things that we don't necessarily have a ton of evidence for like these kind of secondary social emotions like guilt um we can actually look at how these behaviors function. So usually the context in which this kind of happens is you'll see some internet video. And even if you do like a search on YouTube or uh, social media video sites, you and you'd search for guilty dogs, thousands of compilations will come up mm-hmm. of, you know, all of these dogs that are presumably guilty. And usually what the context is, is that the person um, will show something that they view as a transgression by their dog. So maybe their dog chewed something up mm-hmm. or uh, ripped apart stuff or it might show that the bin has been, you know, chucked all over the floor or, you know, or all these sorts of things. And then the the um, the camera will pan to a dog that's looking very kind of sheepish, 
and uh, and 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 maybe you know that's what we're perceiving or is interpreting as um, that the dog is guilty. Mm. And so to be guilty, that dog needs to be able to understand that what they've done is wrong. Yeah. So straight away we're off the you know, the charts in terms of if we actually examine any of these things and actually start to look at it, you know, it, it starts to fall apart very quickly if we if we if we just scratch the surface even superficially. Mm. You know, so first of all, um ripping up the bin or chewing something or whatever, um, you know, dogs do not have a moral code that resembles ours. No. They don't have the same sort of levels of etiquette. They will understand about behaviors that lead them to good things or lead them to bad things or, you know, behaviours that are safe or unsafe. Um, And we actually have some research on this. And because I didn't know you were going to ask this, I don't have those references in front of me, Graeme. That's okay. So uh, I'm going to just uh, talk generally about them. And I unfortunately, I can't give any credit, but I presume we can provide the references or something afterwards. Yeah, you can put them Uh, in the show notes if you want. Right. Okay, that's doable. So you just need to remind me. So we do have a little bit of work on this. And... um, Basically, mainly these kind of experiments involved the dog being in a room with their owner and maybe they were left with access to food, for example, mm-hmm. or it, there was one that did a really nice thing. They they um, they left the dog with access to like paper that the dog would often shred. Mm. And even if the owner or somebody else had shredded the paper and then the dog was left there with the paper already shredded and the owner left and came back, the dog would still show these kind of behaviours as if that the dog had done the, the, you know, the terribly bad thing mm. of shredding the paper. So we do have a little bit of experimental evidence from this. And really what we're seeing when we actually examine these signals that we look at with dogs, we see a lot of um, those dogs kind of showing averted gaze. They might be doing big blinks. They tend mm. to be very quiet and small kind of body language. Things are tucked and, mm. and you know, they're often sitting or kind of cornered. And th- we'll often see big blinkies. We might see mm. some tongue flicks and lip licking. We might see some stress yawns, you know, those really tight mm. angular yawns. Um, and often while the person on camera that we, you know, we often see these things is kind of verbally reprimanding the dogs, kind of admonishing the dog. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes they'll be saying slightly humorous things like they'll be going, oh, you know, who could have done this kind mm. of thing? And then they'll pan over to this dog that's looking uh, very sheepish. And mm. what we're really seeing there is probably behavior that functions as appeasing behavior. Yeah. And the thing about behavior is that behavior is functional, right? It works mm. for the individual doing it. Why do we do that? So why do we use appeasing behavior? Appeasing behavior is kind of apologetic behavior, mm. if you want to put a kind of an anthropomorphic spin on it, in that the animal is 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 saying, or the dog in this case is saying, you know, I'm no threat to you, I'm no threat to you, I'm no threat to you. There's no reason for you to, to continue to apply social pressure to me. I'm no threat, I'm no threat. There's, you know, intimidate, you don't need to intimidate, you don't need to go any further. So if you think about why this or how this behavior functions from an adaptive point of view, animals that are appeasing when there's social pressure on them helps them to avoid further aversive stimulation. So the other individual is less likely to aggress towards them, for example, because those animals, those those individuals are saying there's no need to escalate this anymore. I believe you. I'm absolutely not going to take this any further. Mm. Um, so this behavior functions then to allow that animal to avoid further aversive stimulation in that, in that situation. And the thing is, is that what's cueing that behavior is probably the person's behavior. And then some people will say, oh, but, you know, I walk in and I don't know that he's 
ripped up the paper or he shredded the, you know, the stuff in the bin or whatever. Mm. Um, and but I know by looking at him that he's done something. Yeah. And there we go back to that experimental design where the dog goes, when my owner comes home, when that stuff is on the floor. Yeah this is where this is going to get serious for me and I'm going to use appeasement behavior and hopefully that that has functioned in the past mm. to allow me to avoid or reduce the kind of the, the, the aversive level of this um, interaction. And so we don't even have to talk about whether dogs can experience um, guilt. So guilt is a considered a kind of a secondary uh, social emotion, so mm-hmm. quite a complex emotion. Mm-hmm. And for guilt to happen, the dog would have to be able to understand that what they've done is something that's morally wrong. And there is complexity to this because there's different types of guilt and there's different ways and like we could go on and on and on and we don't really want to do that but but, and, but the thing is is that we don't have to tackle that question that there is no um valid evidence for right now um certainly and, and i'm not at all suggesting that dogs don't experience emotion don't have feelings mm. um or any of those things that's not what i'm saying at all um but what i am saying is we don't know that they can definitely do that and the thing is is that we don't have to in order to explain this sort of thing we can do it very simply by looking at how behavior functions for that dog and appeasing behavior uh functions to allow them to avoid aversive interactions so they're so to answer your question um possibly dogs experience guilt but that's probably not what we're seeing in those um in those videos there you go See, right. there you so are bad. blind on that one and I'll have to come back with the references and there is there in one of the very early works there's just it's it's one dog and mm. and um and I I've the, her name is at the tip of my tongue and I can't remember her name so I have to now look it up when we're done here and I'll send you the references then at that point because <laughs> it's annoying me now that I think she was a husky well, yeah, oh anyway okay. yeah okay. so this is this is why I hate Calm not down. having this stuff in front of me it's okay <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> okay. Guilt. Excellent. Done. Okay. Take the box. Right. So my dog's eating loads of grass. He mustn't <laughs> be feeling very well. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? So the grass eating one uh, is a funny one because we have, despite this being a really universally kind of reported behavior everybody kind of talks about it and it almost has this kind of it's almost a cliche in that dogs do it to vomit Mm -hmm. and um there's very little data actually worth looking at grass eating in dogs i think there's one maybe two survey-based papers there's definitely one i've read Mm -hmm. um that surveyed pet owners and they found that um some you know there was very significant uh links between dogs eating and then eating grass and then vomiting and there was all, you know, so people were asked, you know, when their dog ate grass, did they vomit within the time period after doing that? Mm. And I think it was something like half the people said, no, again, I don't have the Lumen references in front of me, which drives me insane. Uh, You're um, not going to sleep again, tonight. <laughs> no, I, I'll be looking up all these things, sending you big long lists of, uh, yeah. of references. Um, so, but I will, I'll send you this one as well. So um, it doesn't seem to be uh, linked to that, but we do know there is some concern sometimes about grass eating at, at different levels. So grass mm-hmm. eating is, is vegetation eating is probably pretty normal mm-hmm. uh, for most dogs and they will eat grass occasionally and little bits here and there and things like that and it's all you know usually totally fine Mm -hmm. and certainly summer grass they often like summer grass they'll often be eating a lot of grass this time of year they also tend to like quite kind of stiff grasses and they'll often eat those if they if they have opportunity to get to those Mm -hmm. um so but we do have to be you know concerned about lumps of grass or lumps of vegetation in the stomach causing impaction and moving down into the gut Mm. 
So we do have to be careful with that kind of stuff. And then we also have this thing of where we look at normal behavior, so so so-called normal behavior, um, and then we look at how it's expressed. So Mm -hmm. is it being expressed at kind of abnormal frequencies or intensities or durations? Mm -hmm. And then we need to consider what's going on there. Um, So there could be, you know, we could see a lot of grass eating um, when there's uh, something in the stomach. So mm-hmm. when there's some gastritis or there's some foreign body in the stomach. And I have seen dogs what, where they will eat grass and then they will vomit the grass, up, maybe not immediately, but later on. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of swirled around smaller foreign bodies mm-hmm. that kind of maybe wouldn't come up or down with vomiting. They're not really moving anywhere. They're kind mm-hmm. of sitting in, in a puddle at the bottom of the stomach, I suppose. And um, the, the grass seems to kind of, you know, it kind of sw- not swirls around it, but it's kind of wrapped around it. And there there could be some protective mechanisms there in terms of a way of, of you know, y- using grass to pass stuff down through the intestine so there's damage to it or bring, you know, vomit stuff up mm. without doing damage to the to the, the kind of the, the frameworks there um, and, th- and things like that, you know. So, so there could be functioning there. Uh, we often see it as kind of a displacement behaviour as yeah. well. Dogs might suddenly start to bite at grass and they're really wound up, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they could be biting at all sorts of things. So it's one of those tricky ones where it is, it's it's normal, natural, necessary dog behaviour, but we, we want to look at the frequency, duration, intensity of that mm. behaviour. And certainly if dogs are suddenly eating grass and kind of really seeking it out, mm. um, you know, there could be some nausea there. We might want to know about that. We might want to talk about about that with the with the dog's vet, make sure there isn't some reflux um, going on mm. and, and, and things like that. Make sure that we, we don't have a foreign body that's gone down there or or has been down there for a little while yeah. and is looking to move, mm. <laughs> uh, which can cause all sorts of problems. So um, so so there's lots of reasons why grass can be eat, can, can dogs can be eating grass. It doesn't they don't need it to vomit. They can vomit without it. Yes, apparently, <laughs> as as that survey shows, they're pretty they're pretty good at vomiting and. <laughs> They've quite muscular stomach and muscular kind of abdomen and, and they can vomit quite well without grass. So it doesn't seem to be the function, but certainly it's probably associated for some dogs in some contexts that might be associated with reflux or some nausea. Um, and they might do it to try to bind something that's in the stomach and mm. um, that might be causing a little bit of gastritis to br- and make that easier to come up then that could possibly be a way of of doing that um so that might be what's going on but we've very little information about it despite it being reported um across the board by pet owners yeah like for so years like oh this, forever this, yeah like yeah my granddad used to say it's all yeah, like, absolutely. You know, so yeah. it's long long yeah, time long standing mm. yeah yeah absolutely and yet yeah, we've actually had very little kind of looking at it, you know, examining it in any way um, for for dogs. So, yeah. So there we go. Cool. Two, check. Very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a really common one that I still hear kind of currently is that, you know, dogs off lead, sees another dog in the distance. You, Uh You call them, trying to call them back. They look at the dog, they look back at you. And then people will say, oh, she just completely ignored me. And, uh-huh. and and went off after the dog. And so can dogs actively ignore you? Are they making that decision to ignore themselves or what do you think? Um, so this comes down to wording again, yeah. doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess, because when it comes to performing behavior, the, you know, the decisions are being made based on contingencies, and mm-hmm. the history of those contingencies. So um, if I have certain options, 
which option is likely to be matched with the strongest reinforcement history. So it becomes this kind of matching law sort of idea mm-hmm. where, you know, um, the, 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 the dogs might be, che- might be more likely to choose behaviours with a richer reinforcement history in the context. So what that means is under those conditions, dogs do this behaviour um, because it leads to this outcome that's yeah pretty you know they're they're into in a big way and um and therefore they're more likely to do that behavior under those conditions over and over and over again so um i suppose there'll be a lot of kind of expectation then of a dog being able to be accountable for that so is the dog willfully doing it right yeah Uh, i guess um again it's like the guilt thing it's like doesn't matter yeah. It actually doesn't matter um, because we can say, yeah, dogs are accountable because, you know, and there's all of this sort of canine cognition work that says, oh, yeah, they're cognitively similar to a three year old and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is they're talking about very specific criteria. Yeah. And even then, the evidence is um, loosey goosey, I'm going to say. <laughs> And uh, um, and again, all of the references. Uh, but um, <laughs> you're slick sweating over there. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. I've, I've uh, such a list of things now that I have to send you. You're going to be sorry. All these PDFs. <laughs> oh <laughs> my away. god! Uh, this is torture. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the dog's behavior is information. So if you have different expectations of that dog and that context well then you have to step it up in terms of the reinforcement history that you offer so you become your 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 option becomes a viable choice for that individual dog Mm. and they're not doing this you know to deliberately spite you or make you look terrible or anything like that um and if they are even if they are which they're probably not capable of um you know uh, but even if they are it doesn't matter because the outcome is still the same your behavior uh, or their behavior is information, your behavior is information as well. Mm. Their behavior is information and it means that you need to present uh, other options for that individual dog under those conditions. So under those conditions, uh, uh, you need to offer it. it, it that's if your expectations are different. Maybe mm. you're quite happy with that, you know, and you're going, oh yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, Understandable. and But if you're not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if you're not under those conditions, then you have to make your options the options you would prefer the dog to do um worth their while yes you know uh, build that reinforcement history um and uh, and make it amazing and give them lots of options under those conditions right so it's Mm. not just return to you for high value food because um that might not cut it um because if you look at that function of that dog running over to that other dog what are the things what how does that function for that dog what is that dog getting out of that mm. so not only are they might be getting out of you know social contact but they might also be getting you know an outlet for kind of getting super excited and wound up mm-hmm. and or maybe they want to have a kind of a social contest you know thinking adolescent mm-hmm. boys you know uh, and i mean dogs here but also men um, of course <laughs> of course uh and uh, you know and they might also get a little bit of agency out of this you know um i often say to pet owners you know when puppies are puppies they're like toddlers they think that the sun shines out of you and then when Mm. they become adolescents it's not so cool to be seen with your parents anymore and so there's a ton of um you know there's going to be a ton of kind of social reinforcement that comes from that that being in you know being independent and being able being suddenly being strong and brave enough and and fast enough to be able to you know give the two fingers to your parents (laughs) you know to your your parents so there's so there's lots of things they could be getting out of that so how can we 
you know, and I, I tend to say to people, well, you're not actually competing against that. You're just having to do what you have to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you continuously practice in under those same conditions and expect another outcome, um, well, not only is that the definition of insanity, but also <laughs> you're battling extinction. You're trying to mm. to extinguish a response that's programmed by those conditions. Mm. So you're trying to get rid of behavior, um, you know, that's that that all of the conditions are telling the dog this is the thing to do because I get this massive payout, you know, from it yeah, when yeah. I do it under these conditions. So I'm going to do that a ton. Um, so that means you have to come up with more options, not just a, one better option, more options for them under those conditions. Yeah. So there you go. Three. Awesome. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I haven't had to pass yet. No, so and that is an option, folks. Yeah, I'm allowed to pass. She can pass, but I, do, mm-hmm. I think people will be like, what the hell? You know, we'll have to do that at a future More stage. pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, <laughs> I don't think he'll pass on any of these, but you will laugh for sure. Um, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, a common one as well what what kind of colors can dogs see in so can dogs only see in certain colors on uh, oh this is stretching now because we're kind of going away from my general area but um yeah they have a limited well i mean so uh the 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 oh god i don't know the technical terms this is the the wavelengths of light that we can see mm-hmm. the humans can see are limited as well and yeah. dogs are probably a little further limited um than that um they probably have a narrower range of uh, within those uh, wavelengths mm-hmm. so one of the ones that i find i always find interesting is uh is the red and green one yeah so they see red and green really similarly so when you play with red toys on grass mm-hmm. that's why people are often going oh my god it's right there like yeah, can you yeah. not smell it <laughs> yeah. and if he's looking for it with his eyes he might not be able to see mm. it as well so think about your ch- the color of toys the color of food rewards the color of whatever anything that you want them to notice Mm. um and um think also if you're doing things like agility you're expecting them to be able to you know calculate depth perception and things like that you have to think about the colors of those things relative to the background and stuff like that particularly if they're approaching them at speed Mm -hmm. and then there was um there's quite an interesting bit of work that looked at dogs experience experiences in the veterinary environment and Mm. they found that not only was there a white coat effect for some individuals dogs and cats a white coat Mm. effect being that um somebody wearing a a white coat caused an increase in certain stress markers and was you know because the the vet wore it and Mm -hmm. um then horrible things happened to the dog painful Mm -hmm. things or or scary things or whatever happened to the dog Uh, but also that really quite bright white might be a bit jarring for them mm. um and that we should have a real think about using that kind of those kind of very jarring uh, bright colors for them in those mm. sort of environments where they're already kind of overly stimulated in terms like that's not really a thing but like in terms of the sensory input they're trying to monitor so many things in a veterinary environment right mm. because they're going oh my god that smell and the stress smells of other animals and the, then there's a bunny over there and, <laughs> and you know and there's the yeah. disinfectant yeah. and there's you know the smell of the medicine that they're going to give me or put in me or you know all of those things that can't you know the, that sensory experience that they associate with what's coming which might not be yeah. terribly pleasant for them no. and so adding another thing that's just naturally aversive mm. right it doesn't it doesn't it, like so it doesn't even have to be associated with the vet or or getting an injection or your temperature taken or whatever that it's naturally aversive that we can reduce as many of those things yeah 
you know, that you can minimize a little bit of the aversive experience uh, for dogs. But that's it. That's all I know. <laughs> so four, <laughs> go. <laughs> that's about it. I can't so, go into specifics more on that because it's just not an area that I do a ton of stuff on. Yeah, well, that's that's so, that's cool. Then. Um, yeah. And this one is it's actually linked to this one because I remember <laughs> oh, the specific great. conversation Um, this particular guy is a dog and yeah. a cat and uh-huh. he said he was a snooker fan and the cat loved the snooker because uh-huh. the cat used to chase the balls on the screen <laughs> into the pockets and stuff whereas yeah. he said my dog like is not interested in, in the snooker at all and, I, and and was wondering could could he see it and then this you know it came out around that time remember the TVs were kind of more curved. So now they're all yes. flat screen and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can dogs watch TV, Anne? Or could they watch it before? Or, or can they watch it now and where they couldn't watch it before? Was the curved screens, flat screen, anything to do with it? Go. Um. Again, I again, this is not my area, but, <laughs> but, 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 um, I, I, I will say anecdotally that, mm-hmm. yeah, there seems to be. Now, also TVs have got much larger. Yeah. Um, and I have definitely seen an increase in the population of dogs as we've moved more to flat screen and HD. I mean, that has to be a big yeah, part of nature programs, right? particularly yeah, for, for Maggie. I yeah. know she, she bloody yeah. loves a squirrel, whether yeah. it's in real life yeah. or on the TV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Yeah. And there is dog TV. I mean, there's whole yeah. like one of the one of the parts. One of the the we do kind of a lot of sensory stuff on 100 days of enrichment, and there is one day where I have shared all of these dog TV programs. Yeah, and I, you know, are asking people is their dog interested and things like that and po- polling very informally mm. um, in that way. And again, there's a real split. Some dogs really interested in it mm. and will follow. There's that wonderful video of that doodle where there, have you seen that with there's a doodle and the, the, he's kind of up on his front legs watching the TV. There's a guy golfing and the guy, now here's no. my knowledge of golf. The guy does a massive whatever hit of the golf ball drive is it a drive is that a thing uh, yes. that sounds like a That's word my favorite part know. so far brilliant yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well this wasn't a golf quiz so i'm getting no, off i'm not into golf either but that is brilliant. right okay yeah. Yeah. and um the dog the guy hits the golf ball <laughs> and it goes off screen and the dog like runs past the tv to look where the ball oh is yeah gone. sorry i know what have you yeah, seen that yeah, one yeah, oh, that that's brilliant. fantastic yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and is it i think it's a doodle maybe it's yeah, <laughs> maybe it's a golden retriever. I can't remember. Anyway, it's a, a big fluffy dog, and uh, he kind of goes and he looks out the window to see what the yeah. ball's going. I think that's wonderful. Um, and I, I've a lot of I've worked with a lot of clients who cannot watch, um, you know, a nature documentary yeah. for their dog going batshit crazy yeah. on the TV, yeah. um, and uh, and all of those sort of things. And that's definitely increased over the last few years as these TVs have got bigger and um, the picture has got a better quality. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I have. Lots of dogs who will um, be interested in computer screens. I know my dog, you know, the kind of cross-shaped cursor on an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. My dog will muzzle punch that. Not the arrow cursor. Hmm. So if he's on my lap, so let's say he's on one knee and the laptop is on my other knee, let's say something yeah, yeah. like that. And if he can get his, if his nose is close enough to it, he will kind of, as if it was a fly or something. Oh, yeah, so yeah, closed yeah. mouth with just the surface of, just yeah. the front of his nose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he'll, if I, and I, of course, then that's what I spend hours doing instead of whatever I'm supposed to do with the spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we spend tons of time chasing the, the thing around the screen. So yeah, he'll do that. Um, and he, he's not really interested in the television 
question a whole lot. He would, it would, there would have to be a sound. Yeah. So I do, rem- yeah. you know, uh, he did once. Was there a movie with Colin Farrell where Colin Farrell was on a boat? Why am I remembering that it was on a boat? On a boat? Yeah. He was kind of bearded and had a hat on and Decker took great offence (laughs) to, um, sorry, my computer's saying something. Uh, Decker took great offence and um, stood very stiff, hackled Mm. a little bit and growled while Colin Farrell in this particular Mm. get up was on the screen and was very... And that, that's the most exercise I've ever seen about the television. Uh, whatever. <laughs> but it was definitely Colin Farrell. I th- kind of, from my memory, I think he was on a boat. I don't know why, but he kind of oh. was kind of scruffy looking and had a beard and, and a hat on, a kind of a woolly hat. Like on, well, he's not for kind of everyone, kind of Colin. No, yeah. <laughs> obviously, yeah. <laughs> clearly. And the only other time he showed sensitivity to the television in any great way was uh, there was a howler monkey on the television oh, and yeah. they sang together. Mm, ah, so, but, cool. but he wasn't, yeah, but he, and he'll sing to the uh, 6pm RTE News song but not the 9pm one okay he'll help that as well <laughs> so I don't know what the difference is between those but that's it um, but I've like I said I've worked with a ton of dogs who are super sensitive and their pet owners cannot watch um any sort of nature documentary and I have one dog I worked with that you know when you come on to whatever the um, platform they were using on the television I can't remember what it was now but if they came on to one of the David Attenborough ones just the static page where you could go through the episodes oh, yeah. the dog would start to go absolutely nuts attacking the television and running around the oh, back of the God. television waiting to see where the whatever gazelle were yeah. going to be and all this sort of stuff <laughs> that it had become so you know just the static page so it'd be like he would be having an objection to whatever episode so there you they go, were about we to yeah. evidence yeah. they can absolutely and yeah, do yeah, watch yeah. tv yeah but some dogs seem to be really sensitive to it yeah. some dogs i i kind of see them just kind of peacefully watching it and they're kind of just watching the movement but it's not too you know kind of they're not too they're kind of tense up. about it yeah. yeah they're not too kind of you know narrowed focus about it or anything mm. like that they just they seem to just be getting some sort of sensory payoff from it and then some dogs don't seem to pay any attention at all so there seems to be a gradient. So so there must be some difference there in terms of perception or maybe the type of dog. I mm. tend to find that there's a lot more sensitivity from smaller dogs and border collies. They tend to be my range of and I see um with the and, and this could be also just a lot to do with the popularity of certain types of dogs. So it's it's not this is a skewed sample. But um but a lot of border collies and collie type dogs, so you would imagine that they may be a little bit more sensitive to movement like that. Mm. And a lot of small dogs interestingly a lot of frenchies and pugs who have these forward-facing eyes so you would wonder do they have some sort of similar visual perception like we do Mm -hmm. perhaps which of course is what we've bred you know we've selected for these kind of very human-like faces with the high foreheads and the squished up face nose and things like that Mm. and these four large forward-facing eyes so you would wonder if that's got something to do with that i don't know of any data there could be but like i say this isn't really my area um but that would be there's my experience with that so yes and no maybe see i told you this would be fun see you're enjoying Uh, it now yeah Yeah, Yeah, no you're you're enjoying it certainly (laughs) i'm loving it yeah (laughs) um okay Mm -hmm. so this is a common one as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. when we go away on holidays, is yes. our dog missing us and thinking, where are they gone? Uh, it comes back to this thing again of, uh, I don't know what dogs are thinking. Yeah. And if there's somebody out there trying to tell you what they're thinking, um, I would probably take that with a pinch of salt because we can ascribe 
anything to them in that way. Mm. And um, it's not going to change what's actually happening. Um, are dogs reflecting? Um, possibly. Mm. Uh, are they consciously aware of that? I don't know. I don't think so. But I certainly would see behavior that would suggest they're experiencing stress probably associated with disruption of routines because they can you know they can experience that even with their pet owners not gone away but there's just disruptions and Mm. you know depending on that individual and how sensitive they are to that you know so new furniture for example or we we had dogs who were um with their people all the time during covid and then those people started to have to go back again Mm -hmm. and we see you know those sorts of responses so, um, yeah, I mean, why not? Of course, of course, they, they, I'm sure they miss us. Yeah. How that manifests, I don't know. Well, yeah. But they have an, they, they develop at- attachment relationships. They develop emotional attachments and relationships with humans. They are social animals. There has to be some driver there from an adaptive point of view to make us and them want to reunite Mm. Right. So, you you know, it would make sense from an adaptive point of view that social animals would be motivated to reunite with your group. Yeah. Because that's how you stay alive mm-hmm. and, and that's where all your uh, resource related opportunities are and things like that. So, um, yeah, there would have to be some motivation there. Does it manifest as missing us? Does it in the same way that we feel maybe about missing them mm. um, or are they thinking about us? I don't know how we would answer those questions, mm. um, but I would like to think they might be. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course, as people, <laughs> the people themselves are probably you know, feeling guilty leaving the dog behind. Right. And they would like you to say, oh, no, not at all. They're not missing you at all, you know, because obviously right. that would help them feel much better about it and, and maybe oh, enjoy yeah, their okay. holiday more. I guess that's where it's coming from, you know, but um, yeah. yeah, it's an, it's, it's, it's an, an impossible thing to, to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, but, but, but like, but also they will show behavior that suggests this is distressing for them yeah. or this is in some way, you know, we've made this unpredictable now suddenly, mm. oh God, they go, right. They're not here all the time. They're yeah. not accepted all the time um so i mean and we know that dogs develop all sorts of um behavioral disorder even Mm. and areas of concern in relation to um not being able to access specific you know attachment figure Mm -hmm. so um there are certainly manifestations of that to suggest that and why wouldn't they and they will they do behaviors that function to reunite them. They howl and they try to escape and they, um, you know, will kind of pot or, or clot and bite at uh, the boundary, you know, like the door or the, the windows, even God, mm. uh, and things like that, you mm. know, and, and many, many dogs develop very, very serious anxiety related uh, disorder like proper disorders and it impacts their life and and greatly impacts their quality of life and 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 things like that you know mm. with real physiological autonomic responses like drooling and trembling you know things that um that as individuals they do not have any um, um behavioral control over so yeah yeah i guess how it manifests uh in terms of the thought part of it mm. but again it's this thing they don't we don't need to make assumptions about that yeah. why do we want them to constantly be experiencing the world like people do yeah like that that's that anthropocentric thing that humans do yeah 
great. Um, and but but I mean, at the same time, you balance that with you know there has to be similarities. We've evolved from the same kind of la- mammal uh, lineage. We've very similar brains. We've very similar stress systems. Mm. Very similar biological systems, neurochemical systems, etc. Uh, and also, we've lived together for a hundred thousand years. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so something is working uh, mm. about that. So, but I would like you know to say that. Yeah, they certainly show behaviors that tells us that they want to be with their people. Um, and uh, But whether they're thinking about that or how that manifests cognitively for them, I can't answer those questions. Like, I don't know. We don't have evidence for that. Um, but I guess with shorthand, we could say, yeah, that's a pretty good indication that that dog is super distressed when they can't get to their person. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's it. Okay, you want to, to say that that way? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it's perfect. <laughs> okay. okay. So we, we know that you, you did the, the whole thing of you can't teach uh, an old dog new tricks thing is, right. is um, bleep, right? So it, okay. it, is it harder to teach older dogs new things? So there are a couple of things here. It's like many old adages they kind of become sayings it's i suppose they're the the memes of yesteryear yeah. okay so right now we have like now we have memes so these really fast culturally spreading kind of ideas and um there you know there's some truth to them but you can't really get the nuance into the little short snappy sentence right yeah. so you can't teach old dogs new tricks and that probably was you know, actually a metaphor for something in relation to humans. Um, and we Probably. just have to pick on dogs yeah. <laughs> and uh, because they're part of, you know, again, they're a very culturally relevant part of our, yeah. our world. So they feature in all sorts of historical things, you know. Um, so there's a couple of things here that's going on. So certainly as the brain ages, we know that there is sensory and cognitive decline. So just as there are with people mm. and because dogs live longer now, because, you know, we've better preventative medicine, we've better nutrition, they're kept safer. You know, they're not out on roads mm-hmm. so much anymore, or certainly uh, here in Ireland. Um, so they tend to live longer. So when they live longer, we tend to see more old age disease in populations, right? Yeah. Um, so some of the first um, signs of cognitive decline um, in older dogs are going to be behavior changes and they might be changes to their um, sleeping patterns skew a little bit. So they tend to rise earlier and, and things like that, mm-hmm. similar to older humans as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of similarities there. And canine cognitive disorder has been equated to Alzheimer's at several different levels, including the kind of placking that happens in the brain mm-hmm. that's associated with Alzheimer's. So, so yes, and with sensory decline, things like that. And what's interesting is, is that sometimes we might interpret the dog being disobedient, for example, when yeah. actually there might be just a delay in what they can see. And there's an interesting one, isn't there, with the old dogs? Is it that they, oh, God, again, I need my references. But isn't <laughs> it, it, what, what is it with people? Do people get nearsighted or farsighted more as they age? Well, whatever it is, it's the opposite with dogs. Mm. So they might, and I can't now, and because I can't remember which one it is, but they might need clearer cues from further away because dogs. Um, is that right? Something along those lines. Mm. See, this is this is the problem with me doing this. I can't be entirely sure of what I'm talking about. But <laughs> um, something along these lines. Um, so she is human. Everybody, you see, I am. I am yes. very human. My goodness, and talk about cognitive decline as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I am here a living, breathing <laughs> example of it, <laughs> illustrating the point for you. Um, so, you know, so people might think, oh, he's not coming back to me when I'm calling him anymore. And that could be because he's um, not hearing you so well mm. and also because he's not seeing visual cues so well. Yeah. And dogs, of course, rely very strongly on visual cues more so than on, on verbal cues a lot. Mm. Um, so, so there, you know, people might assume those sorts of things. And then, you know, they there might just be general sensory decline so they might not sniff things out as, as well although yeah. olfaction is probably the one least affected by cognitive decline which mm. is it's why it's so important to provide an enriched olfactory environment for older dogs mm. because they're really using that to guide them and also that's really going to set their brain on fire and get their brain working which is obviously so important for maintaining yeah. uh, some cognitive power as they age so that's why that's super important it's important for all dogs but it's particularly important for those oldies um so yeah, so age is going to impact rate of learning and all of those things. And just because, um, you know, the brain is, is not going to be as functioning as um, efficiently to store information as maybe the young dog. But the other thing that can be going on is um, where this might be relevant is, is that the more dogs have rehearsed, so the bigger the um, the reinforcement history is for a certain set of, be- set of behaviors or for a certain contingency. Oh, so under those con- under particular conditions, the more the dog has rehearsed that, the bigger the reinforcement history there is. So it's harder then for for people to teach that dog. It's it's the same thing. You're competing with extinction, mm. so it's it's harder to teach that dog new behavior under those same conditions mm. um, because there's such a rich reinforcement history for the other yeah. thing. Um, so that might appear that the dog isn't able to learn as well. So if you can imagine an older dog will just have the opportunity just because they've been around longer to build bigger reinforcement histories over time for behaviors under certain conditions so so there may be um difficulty there mm. and but the thing is always your learners is always right so their mm. behavior is information yeah. so it's not so again it's this thing of well you know that's fine if all that stuff is happening and like i can't really tell i can't peer into that dog's brain and say that we're at certain point of deterioration um i'm but instead what i'm going to do is i'm going to use behavioral markers to tell me well this is what this dog needs they need more support in this situation to be able to learn this mm. so we basically have to become better teachers yes yeah. essentially what this is so it's less about the dog's age and more about our teaching skills i guess um mm. where, where that's going to come to but yeah there's a little bit of truth in that as you would say for people as well which is probably what the what it metaphorically refers to mm-hmm. um <laughs> And uh, because as we get older, it definitely is harder to retain information. And there might also be cutoffs. So we have to remember like that there's certain things that dogs need to learn, just like children, where the brain is more open to learning about certain experiences at certain points of of, um, uh, brain development. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about the first three or four months, for example, with puppies, right? There's certain things that they need to be exposed to during that period. And so, of course, that's dwindling then, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's certainly certain markers uh, throughout development where we need to learn certain things and if we don't it's harder to learn those later um because just the way that the brain actually functions in terms of storing or or um uh, processing that information so Mm. yeah yes and no (laughs) okay cool (laughs) (laughs) as clear as mud yeah no i love it okay (laughs) so um a common one is that um people will go you know, on a on a vet visit, and mm-hmm. um, they've got a, a a young adolescent puppy, and it's displaying all sorts of behaviours, and maybe it's suggested to them while they're there that the dog needs to be um, neutered mm-hmm. to to kind of fix these mm. some of these behaviours. So, 
does neutering a dog fix their behavior? Um, oh, so, so this is, again, it's one of these things where it's just full of nuance. And first of all, the thing about fixing behavior, I mean, dogs aren't cars or uh, your mobile phone or something that, that you can just, I know, I know. Uh, and again, it becomes down to how we, how we talk about these things. Yeah. Um, and so people still regularly will talk to me about, you know, I want you to fix this behavior uh, in my dog. And I'm like, well, it's not a mechanic, yeah. uh, you know, so, so we don't really do that. That's the first thing. Mm. Um, and I would say that's a pretty complicated question. And we don't have a whole lot of uh, information about it mm. because um, despite us having a huge population of dogs that are neutered it's very difficult to say well if we didn't neuter them what would have happened yeah. um, you know so and I suppose there's one way you could do it is is that you could use uh, chemical castration for example which is temporary mm-hmm. and uh, the, the implant and that produces a hormone that produces a that the kind of restricts the production of another uh, hormone which eventually through this kind of endocrine um, cascade leads to slowing down the production of testosterone and i suppose what you could do is is you could do you know a certain set of dogs are on this um implant for mm-hmm. a certain period of time and then we you know then we compare that to, you know um each dog has their own control so we compare that their behavior their tendencies then when the the implant has run out or and you know uh, or, and to when they're on when they have the implant on so you can have an idea of the effects of testosterone on their behavioral tendencies and whatever and things like that so i, I guess you could do that we, i don't think that's been done mm-hmm. um uh, but um Neutering, whether you're you castrate males or you're spaying females, is going to impact behavior, um, sex hormones, which is what these procedures aim to affect. Um, have other functions in the body other than just getting the body prepared to make babies mm. uh, puppies in this case. Um, so, and the endocrine system is incredibly complex because every uh, hormone involved is involved, you know, impacts another through these kind of cascades where they turn on and off each other uh, mm. and they turn on and off the actions, these glands around the body. So it becomes a relatively complex thing to, to track down. Certainly there's uh, been more research about the effects of, of castration on animals, um, mammals and animals than there has been on the female sex hormones. And that's just because science really only cares about men and that's because most scientists are men. Um, yeah. And that's, oh, that's well documented. Yeah. I mean, down the history of forever. Uh, and it's the same in dogs so that mm. we've, we've tended to look more so at the effects of castration than we have looked at the effects of um, spaying. Mm. So we have limited works really on behaviour that, uh, that we can say reliably. And so I guess it's going to come down to individual situations. So mm. I've worked with lots of dogs. And again, this is anecdotal. So, you know, take from what, what you will. But you know, we definitely have some papers, so a little bit of research that's looked at, you know, this is neutering might be a risk factor in increase or decrease decreases in certain types of behavior um but there's lots of confounders in relation to this we could be testing dogs before they're neutered at certain developmental stages and then testing dogs after they're neutered at other developmental stages and it's actually not the neutering that's had the big impact but other stuff has had the impact we're also talking about it being very or can be very difficult to separate the environmental effects on behavior versus the physical effects because the, the things all come together right mm-hmm. so you know so it, it becomes a complicated thing but we do need to acknowledge that sex hormones like testosterone or estrogen and progesterone in the female uh, dog are going to have impacts on behavior mm-hmm. whether those impacts are just felt around for females just during their cycle um is not 
necessarily terribly clear. Mm -hmm. And because we have seen a move towards spaying dogs, bitches a little bit later, Mm -hmm. or maybe not spaying them at all, that we are starting to see more pseudo pregnancies, for example, which we used to not see as commonly, and we see them a lot more now. Mm -hmm. And we are beginning to start to look at the impacts of female hormones on behavior in dogs and also in people. Aren't we lucky? Woohoo. It's only half the population. Um, um, And and, and the female hormonal cycle is incredibly complicated, which is probably Mm -hmm. another reason why male-dominated science has kind of avoided it, because they didn't really want to be getting into all that complicated plumbing. (laughs) (laughs) Boys are such simpler creatures. Um, And um, so it's a little bit less clear. Uh, with females, certainly. And that, that's not because the effects are more or less. It's because we, the, the information is less clear. Um, and But, you know, it, it, it certainly is going to. And I would say that in general, when we work with um, dogs who aren't neutered yet, uh, we, we will often say, you know what, we would prefer not to do that right now. Let's see if we can do some environmental stuff and see does that, you know, um, does environmental and just adjustment stuff and see does that work or not mm. um, and, uh, and and see does that help us or where we are. And then at some points, we also have to look at behaviour and understand that sometimes sex hormones can be behaviour modifiers is in that they might cause behavior to intensify Mm -hmm. in some individuals for example and uh, we might have to make arguments on for against on balance Mm. about those things as well so it can be really complicated and i would say that it's very much an individual thing the one thing i would say is as though that i have worked with a lot of dogs who were kind of um incessant humpers Mm -hmm. and the vet said yeah Yeah. we're just going to chop them off Mm -hmm. or we're going to we're going to neuter them and that's going to stop it and and in a lot of cases it's intensified it uh, and it's made it worse and that's because humping isn't just a sexualized behavior so you would imagine that neutering is going to impact behaviors that would be very much uh, kind of related to um, sexual behavior so Mm. things like marking and um um same-sex aggression and and, Mm. and things like that um and you know so you would imagine that those behaviors might reduce when you should but the problem is is that it's not it's not so clear cut the one where i tend to see the best outcomes is where we talk about neutering and male male contests in younger males or we're certainly not males that have been practicing it for 10 years yeah. um that that certainly seems to and what i'll often do in those situations is we'll talk about we'll talk with the vet first about using the implant to see do we get those desired results mm. because um neutering them doesn't make them immediately calmer i suppose i guess that's probably the question it doesn't calm them down Mm. i'm gonna say and a lot of a lot of people will say you know we got her neutered because we thought that was going to calm her down Mm. or we got him neutered because we thought it was going to calm down and they're like that hasn't happened and i'm going yeah because that's not probably that's really not what that's going to do for you so neutering is not some shortcut to fix quote unquote um some you know complex behaviors because there's so much other stuff going on and contributing to that it might help Mm -hmm. in some situations as reducing the intensity of some of those behaviors and in some cases it might not help and increase the intensity of those behaviors so we we want to make it an individual thing and at the same time then we also have to balance that with other concerns that are linked with neutering and one of those is that um dogs can off, obviously have unwanted pregnancies mm-hmm. or cause unwanted pregnancies uh, if they're not 
if they're entire and they're not managed well. Mm -hmm. So we have to balance that. There's kind of social stuff there that we have to balance. And then we also have to balance some of the work that says that, you know, neutering at certain times or or limiting the body's exposure to certain uh, sex hormones at certain periods of development might impact, might be a risk factor for the development of certain conditions later on, Mm -hmm. um, such as some cancers, for example. But where behavior is very intense, one of the questions that we often have to ask is, is this dog going to live long enough, given their behavior, to mm-hmm. get cancer, to get age mm-hmm. cancer? So, so we have to, you know, kind of consider those things um, as well. Mm. So there's a lot to balance when we um, when we talk about neutering and it's it's not as as uh, definitive as it once was. You know, it was just oh, six months, chop them off. Mm. Um, you know, we're really we don't really uh, emphasize that so much anymore. Hopefully, and mm. um, we t- we take into into account a lot of the, a lot of other factors that we have to balance with uh, with those with making those decisions. Yeah, and I can imagine. I can't even remember what the question was. <laughs> this new written fix kind of kind oh, of yeah, okay. new fix my dog, but like <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, and I feel so- sorry for those uh, poor doggies because they're they're obviously struggling, you know, to cope or, or you know if they're displaying certain behaviors that maybe would lead to somebody saying oh you know you should get them neutered or whatever Mm -hmm. and then they're put under anesthetic and Mm -hmm. put through surgery and how that's supposed to help that dog is like absolutely so that may in itself be traumatic and have impacts on on behavior um yeah absolutely i agree 100 percent. yeah and um the what's the latest as i know it's always changing but what's the latest now science wise on um the best stage to to waste to neuter and spay why you why you ask me this when i have no references in front of me um i don't know what the very latest is um the the last we kind of saw that it it varies from breed to breed doesn't it Mm. and it varies in terms of the different types of cancer um but certainly the suggestion right now is is that we should be waiting until dogs so so-called growth plates are closed mm-hmm. um and that that should be determined through um x-ray before you make those decisions because the age can vary and the what growth plate are you talking about mm-hmm. and and the type of dog that you're dealing with and the size of dog so everything with dogs is so variable and complicated because they're this really unusual species where everybody is different from I everybody know. else in so many dramatic ways mm-hmm. um so i think Possibly the latest is, is that we wait until uh, growth plates are closed. And certainly with those high risk breeds like Visla and Rotties mm. and um, Boxers and Golden Retrievers, where there are higher incidence of certain cancers that we think are possibly related to neutering. And it, like we couldn't expect removing such influential hormones from the body would have no effects. Right. Yeah. We could. I, I don't know why that was ever the expectation. Um but also at the same time, a lot of this um, work that's up to cancer, for example, a lot, certainly a lot of the early works were, were, were from surveys from referral centers. So mm. we're likely to have a bigger population of dogs developing cancer going to a referral center because mm-hmm. you would go to that because you would need more complex treatment for your dog. So there's lots of kind of, we have to look at these populations quite carefully and saying all of that, my dog is entire mm-hmm. and I made it which was at the time, I mean, he's 11 and a half now, mm. at the time it was a very controversial decision and yeah. I got a lot of uh, social media flack yeah. for not neutering my dog mm. um, at that time as if this was, you know, anybody else's business, but here we are. Yeah. Um, and he has never 
you know, impregnated a bitch or no. he's never had the opportunity to do that. We don't have boy dog problems. He doesn't care about other dogs. You know, he's, you know, all of those things. Mm. Um, so I've just, it, it never became an issue no. for me. So it was just never done. There was definitely periods during his adolescence when testosterone was certainly playing with his brain. And if I would be, I'd have been allowed, I would have put him up onto the table and neutered him myself. <laughs> but because uh, some of the stuff he was getting up to, but uh, but certainly, I often feel that uh, entire males are just a little bit better able for stuff and that's of course because testosterone does have some stress protective effects for the brain mm. so you would imagine that once they get out of their zany adolescent phase when there's just stupid levels of testosterone coursing through their brain their bodies and they don't know what to be doing with themselves mm. um that you know that there might be some resilience re- um derived from from remaining intact and that was really why i did it and it was for some uh, body protective stuff as well reduce it's a slightly reduced risk factors for knees and hip stuff and you know various injuries like that um and um in some populations right so Mm. this is the problem we have um and so he's still entire because it's just never become an issue so i've never like that it's elective surgery. It's very big. Well, not so much for males. It's very mm. big for females. Um, but I'm not into putting my dog under anesthetic and going for elective surgery unless we really need to do that no. um, from a welfare point of view. Mm. So regardless, you know, neutering is, another, is a pretty drastic way of, of shaping dogs to our likings, right? Yeah. Uh, so, th- so I think we should examine it a little bit closer i mean there's a lot of close uh, close examination of cropping ear cropping and docking mm. for example and i'm not you know i'm not going to make direct comparisons but neutering is a thing that we've done because we feel it makes dogs easier to live with for mm. us and um and so i think we should examine that a little bit more closely it's just that it's culturally acceptable and cropping maybe isn't as culturally acceptable probably because it's associated with a certain uh, certain types of dogs mm-hmm. and certain practices with those dogs so there's a lot of prejudice in relation to that and uh, whereas neutering is seen as the thing to do and like i said i had a lot of social media uh, harassment yes. uh, and bullying mm. when I was revealed and it wasn't revealed by me there was a picture of Decker diving into some body of water of course and uh, <laughs> a person <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's you know that's just his his way of being yeah. and uh, a person asked had I implanted surgically implanted uh, the what are the the fake testicles neuticles yeah, yeah. or neuticles that that's what she thought that that's what this person presumed I had done yeah. uh, rather than being able to possibly consider that I might not ha- I might just not have neutered him yeah and he was over a year at this stage so people were on me then and it was a whole thing well, it was a whole attack well, and he still has his bits thanks very yeah, much and he's been. A very healthy dog. And as well, mm-hmm. didn't you say he's the last one of his litter still going? He is. He is the last one of his litter alive. And his mum and dad are dead as well. And his litter mates just are gone. And they're not a very long lived breed, no. unfortunately. So. Yeah. Thanks to very, very high COIs. So everybody's very close related. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, so he's the last one, touch wood. So be interesting to find out did, did any of those get neutered <laughs> yeah. uh yeah some of them were mm. yeah yeah there he, he's i think is he the longest entire i think he was out of that mm. litter yeah i think so yeah it's got to mm-hmm. be something to it well there could be but that's a very small sample so yeah. that's not necessarily no. indicative of anything there no. could be lots of other he's the only one out of his litter that's not in the country where they were bred so mm. there's there could be a massive issue there mm. you know even though 
he, well, he's from Sweden. And yeah. I think, do, do the Swedish people have longer expected lifespans than Irish people? Possibly. Yeah. I think so. You would imagine Swedish people would be healthier, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I don't know how that translates for dogs. Maybe Irish dogs are healthier than Swedish dogs. I don't know. <laughs> so, like, so there's so many variables there. There's no way of tying it to just that one um, factor. But no. what I will say is, yeah. is that with his bits, he's a very resilient dog. Yeah. Very resilient. Yeah. Physically very resilient and behaviorally incredibly resilient. Mm. Water off a duck's back. Nothing Nothing is, nothing phases him. If he has, he has never shut down once in his life. And I'm not just attributing that to testosterone, but it has to help. Yeah, of course it does. Um, Yeah. You know, um, you know, so, so, uh, so, so that's where the choice to keep him entire. And I've only ever owned one neutered male dog. Mm. So. So that's the other thing. So it hasn't been a normal practice for me to neuter males. I would I would have a tendency towards neutering females um, mm. just because the complexity of the whole thing is uh, hard to monitor and mm. manage. Um, for me personally, I know other people do it very well, yeah. uh, but for me personally, it's a harder one. But I tend to have boys. Yeah. And they tend to keep their bits. So I, again, I can't remember what why we're talking about this, but uh, it's a nuanced thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, a, it's a complex thing. So we should. So I suppose the issue is rather than having blanket neutering recommendations, they should be tailored towards the individual. Yeah, of course. Like everything really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, sure. Um, and this leads on to the, <laughs> the next oh, one. <laughs> so the, a really common one as well. It's like, oh, I wish he'd had a litter before. Oh, and uh, so does it negatively affect a female dog if they are spayed and do not have a litter of puppies? Uh, I don't know of any data that suggests that. Um, certainly because, so I suppose there's kind of cultural swings about these things, right? So when we were kids, that was the thing that you would allow the bitch have a litter because it was going to calm her down. And it's this kind of very misogynistic notion that, you know, females are maternal and this turns us into, you know, some sort of, I don't know, weeping willow. And even though childbirth, or puppy birth and pregnancy are ridiculously violent on the body mm-hmm. and women that go through it are goddamn heroes mm-hmm. um, and all those sorts of things. And and this promotion of it being some sort of a romantic thing is an absolute load of codswapple. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> um, when it comes to uh, bitches, I don't know of any data that suggests that, but I do think we do. Ha- we've got it swung the other way, hasn't it? Because yeah. we've had these crises in relation to the population of unwanted dogs mm-hmm. and things like that, and it was we we would have come down very hard, and it would become very uh, kind of a cultural taboo for us to allow a bitch to have an oops litter and things like that, yeah. and. Um, and all of that kind of stuff. And the thing to remember is, and I know you will see tons of rescue ads and things like that, that will say things like, oh, you know, she's had lots of litters and all of these sorts of things. And and isn't this terrible? I mean, I don't know how many bitches in heat these people have seen, mm. uh, but bitches in heat are incredibly persistent about mating with as many males as they possibly can. Mm. And because dogs tend to live in these promiscuous um, mating kind of groups, these social groups where the several males will mate with um, any one female where they have the opportunity to do so. And they will all try and mate with her as many times as possible. And and litters can have multiple sires and things like that. And, you know, that doesn't strike me as an animal that's going, Oh my God, please don't make me have babies. And I'm not suggesting that, these bitches having that might be having litters in horrendous conditions are having a good time. But this notion that 
that you know that they've had some hardship just because they've had a litter. Yeah. Again, there's nothing to back that up either. Um, bitches will go out of their way to um, mate with lots and lots of boys if they uh, if they have the opportunity to do so. If those boys are available, they'll be all about it. Mm. And uh, and and you know, and kind of getting them to do all these sorts of things. So I don't know of any data that does that. I would say that you know, really that that's based in kind of our cultural attitude towards um, women. I mean, it, misogynistically, that's believed about women as well. Yeah. You know, is that they keep them pregnant and barefoot. God, this is going to a place that we probably don't need this to go to. And I'll be on a soapbox <laughs> very quickly uh, if we keep going this way. Um, but uh, but so it probably comes from that because so much of this sort of stuff comes from that. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah um, it's not the truth, Graham. <laughs> women or bitches don't count down because they've no, had a litter. No, I mean, where it's coming. No, of <laughs> I know, course I'm not. Joking, yeah, I'm, joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Get me into trouble there now. We could cut that, cut and base that yeah, out, yeah. In, uh, out of context. <laughs> Get you into trouble. Uh, but yeah, no, there's, I mean, there's not going to really be any truth to that you, you would imagine that that might be linked with you know if we just get away from misogyny but it might be linked with you know just that they're maturing yeah. because they're coming to that age because you know um um like sexual maturity and social maturity are two different things and mm. you would imagine so yes very very young bitches can have puppies uh, because sexual maturity can be quite uh, early mm. But you would imagine after that, because they're approaching social maturity anyway, they might appear calmer. And then, of course, the correlation would be that it was because they've um, had this litter of puppies or second litter of puppies or yeah. whatever. But I mean, the, you know, the sort of stuff that the body has to go through to carry a pregnancy, uh, to, to go through um, their heat uh, cycle, mm. which is uh, vastly complicated, and then go carry a pregnancy and then birth puppies and rear them and feed them and look after them. Mm. You know, that's that's a ton of work and it's going to take a lot out of the body. So she might be a little bit tireder after that and appear a little bit calmer yeah. because it's going to take. Now, in fairness, when it comes to pregnancies, healthy bitches and even pretty unhealthy bitches um are very resilient when it comes to this and uh um they 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 tend to recover very very well um from pregnancy and really it's only the last kind of third of the pregnancy period where the puppies are really taking nutrition out of them but before that they're kind of operating as normal mm. um and uh, and that kind of thing so 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 dogs are and again we've selected them to be very efficient producers right because if you domesticate an animal that's what you're going to do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You're going to make sure that those animals are going to be able to reproduce more efficiently. And of course, the big difference between dogs and wolves, male dogs and male wolves is, is that male dogs are able are producing sperm or, um, uh, all year, all the time. Yeah. Whereas males are only doing that during those breeding seasons because it doesn't make sense to have to, you know, keep an or this organ running when there's not going to be any bitches in heat for you to actually mate with. Mm. Um, but male dogs will, will keep going all the time. Yeah, they're ready to make babies at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Uh, they are there and ready to go. Yeah. Um, and and that and then of course you know what we've done now we've kind of pushed it so far to the other extreme, haven't we? We've certainly selected these animals to be very efficient, so they come into heat more often. Mm. The um, the males are ready to go all the time. Yeah. Um, but then what we've done is is we've um, we've selectively bred them to have deformities yeah. so that they can't actually reproduce naturally so we have a lot more uh, but what we've done instead of um 
selecting for healthier individuals who can breed naturally. Um, mm. We've just developed more um, surgical procedures to allow us mm. to, to to keep these uh, to keep these these litters alive. That really the you know we're doing everything we can to not support that. Yeah. Um, so you know so we've come at the other there's a full circle here somewhere. <laughs> um, you know in in terms of this, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, I can't remember what the question was, but yeah. <laughs> does it does, does, is it is it, it does it impact on the female negatively oh, if they yeah, don't have yeah, a litter yeah, of pups yeah. before yeah, yeah, no but yeah, that was a cool yeah, that was yeah, a cool answer yeah. okay so this this is the last one for today right okay. this is going to be a, this is one of the most random things anyone's oh, ever said to me. No. is it good for a dog's coat to rub uh-huh. raw eggs on it Ooh. Oh, gross. And I say that only because raw egg kind of freaks me Mm. out. So this could be a completely personal and kind of a bias on my part. But just from the hygiene point of view, anybody else having to touch that dog and does it cook if they go out in the sun? (laughs) Or, you know, what happens? You know, the way dogs sit out in the sun and you touch off them and you're like, oh my God, it's like the surface of the sun their back is or whatever. So if you put raw egg on it, does it start to coagulate and cook is that what's going on what's i don't know i would say don't do that and i would also say that uh, from a point of view of adding things to hair and skin for the most part well hair that you have that's outside you know that's outside the body that you can touch outside the body is dead tissue Mm. right so that's just they're just columns of dead cells so so putting stuff on hair is just coating that hair it's not actually it's very unlikely to be penetrating it in any great way um and then skin there's a ton of barriers built into our skin so that we don't absorb a ton of stuff because you're not absorbing you know toxic stuff and all that kind of stuff so i would say uh, most a lot of topical things are um just usually kind of are fat based and they're just adding a layer to the skin or adding a layer to the hair which might be protective in and of itself but it's it's possibly not adding you know not able to absorb a whole lot of these apparent nutritional effects or wonder drugs or you know all these things um that they're going to put in put into put into our skin, you know, that they tell us about the ceramides or the hyaluronic acid or the vitamin C mm. or the whatever this week's ad is. Um, <laughs> and I marvel, I marvel at this marketing. I marvel at it. It's absolutely ingenious. It's wonderful stuff. Um, and while recognizing that a lot of it is, uh, they're tall tales, you know, they're stretching yeah. uh, what the research says uh, for the most part. Uh, but uh, so I would just say for so many reasons, other than any of that, just don't be messing around with raw egg and putting it. I mean, my dog would spend his day trying to get every bit of it off him and ingest it. That would be his yeah. day done if I put uh, a raw egg into the middle of his back. Yeah, uh, he would love it. He'd be delighted would, with himself. It's the most. It's honestly, <laughs> I think it's the most random thing ever. It's gross. And this particular <laughs> man, man's dog at the time was a collie, and all his previous uh-huh. dogs were collies as well uh-huh. and he swore that this is uh-huh. why their coats were so shiny uh-huh. and I Could thought it was a wind up honestly I thought it was a wind up first because I was like looking at the oh. dog going their coat looks actually really really good but there's no there's no way he's he's rubbing raw eggs in it but like that, no this was actually Gross. happening fairly regularly mm. and um, 
yeah, I mean, the only thing I was thinking of was like maybe the dog was like gross. I went out and like did a load of rolling around or something, and in some weird way, um, made their, made made, made their their uh, coat look all poofy and lovely or something. Yes, I have no yes. idea, but like it oh, surely would be. You remember yeah. um, there's that episode of The Simpsons where Lisa gets chewing gum in her hair. Yeah. And they start layering on all the home remedies yes. to see which one is going to work. <laughs> yeah. to, and she ends up having, you know, kind of a three kilos of various foodstuffs added to her head, just all stuck and matted into the chewing gum. So maybe that's how it happened. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it was, but I, you know, I, some yeah. remedy. <laughs> it's it's really fucking weird. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I that's, was, a, that's a funny one. There you I go. would say for no other reason, just the hygiene and the grossness of it. Don't do that. No. Exactly. No. Yeah. Blech. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> purposely left that one last. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and so there you go. See, that was pretty fun. I know it did. Okay. I did body. I knew it would body you not to have notes and stuff or, yeah. or research done. But, but, but just not that. to be able to be accurate, right? Because I hate that's you know that's my thing i would i would find it very difficult if i if i I, i've missed i may have misrepresented any of the research or any of the things i have talked about and i apologize yeah no it was really it was really fun it was really fun thanks so much and yeah (laughs) i think you enjoyed it too yeah but um Um, sweating here i'm sweating (laughs) um well we'll come back and do another another few of them um soon yeah cool cool yeah absolutely <laughs> okay <Comfort>. nice one <laughs> all right okay sleep well okay after that <laughs> yeah. thanks right. a million bye If you enjoy the show, remember to please subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review and recommend it to your friends and family to help us reach and help more people and their dogs. Also, please give us a follow on Twitter at BarksidePod and also on Instagram at BarksidePod to help grow our online community. Look after yourselves and your doggies. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to seeing you here again real, real soon.